0: We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and Beyond Companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice.
1: Isn't it a terrible thing that we now live in a society where the only way that things get done is in the private sector. You know, that's an academic debate for academics, but like we're losing time. (laughs) The sort of burn it all down approach is not tenable, but the, I'm going to build something and I'm going to show you that it works and you're going to come see it. That is a success story. And we're not top down telling our best technologists what they are going to build and how they're going to build it. Um, We are letting private competition and we are letting private enterprise, build the best companies in the world.
0: Welcome back to Turpentine VC, a podcast where we discuss the art and science of building successful venture firms, VC to VC. For today's episode, we have Catherine Boyle. Catherine is a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, leading the firm's American Dynamism Fund. We discuss why Catherine and A16Z started the American Dynamism practice, and what they hope to accomplish, how the next SpaceX will be built and the type of characters that build extraordinary companies, and more. This episode with Catherine was originally recorded several months ago, but still is relevant today. Here's our conversation. Catherine, thanks so much for joining.
1: Thanks for having me, Eric.
0: So, Catherine, by by way of introduction,
2: for people who are not deeply familiar, I I want you to define American dynamism, and and more so define the story of, of how it came to be, because it's not obvious that a style reporter for The Washington Post later turned Stanford GSB graduate would come to uh come to create or popularize the the American dynamism and practice in in venture capital. Even
1: just calling me out as a style reporter. That's like a full other (laughs) story. Um, I'm
2: negging you, (laughs) yes.
1: So thanks for uh for ruining my credibility uh, at, at the beginning of it. Um uh but what what is American dynamism? So it it the sort of so the sort of traditional definition that we use is it's companies that are actively supporting the national interest so a broad category of companies in you know tech companies aerospace defense national security but also things like housing education Infrastructure, transportation, any company that technically touches something that deals with government. So whether they're selling to government, whether they're regulated from day one because they they have certain restrictions of, of who they can sell to outside of the U.S., um, or whether they're a, a company that touches all citizens' needs. The, you know, there, there's a there's a variety of different companies that we would put into that bucket. Uh, but the reason that we started the practice actually goes back to sort of a, a lack of. Silicon Valley understanding, I think in the last 10 years, how important these companies are for a functioning society. Um, there's, a, there's a variety of reasons why Silicon Valley and Washington kind of stopped working together. When you think about the origins of Silicon Valley, the Silicon Valley was built by the department of defense. It was built by defense contractors. It was built in conjunction hand in hand during the cold war um, with Washington. And then sort of, I'd say like post 2001, 2002, things started really kind of going in opposite directions. Probably a variety of reasons for that. Uh, maybe it's because California is so far away from Washington. Uh, maybe it's because um, you know, th- there was sort of a, a division of the types of jobs that elites were going into versus the types of jobs that that, that uh, people were going into in Washington or the types of interests. Uh, probably, probably a variety of different reasons, but something happened where Silicon Valley and Washington sort of lost touch. And I'd say that in probably 2015, 2016, we started noticing, and and I personally started noticing companies that started saying things like, "Oh, well, I care about national defense," uh, or or I care about the country, not not you know, um, speaking of things in terms of uh, needs of the entire world, but things that are very specific because of physical reasons or because of regulatory reasons that that really anchor around America. And in 2016, 2017, that was sort of a contrary and controversial thing to say. And here we are in 2023. Um, where this has become a category of company that that many many founders want to build, realizing that the needs of, of the country are are, are unique um, and are important, and in a time where history has begun, um, where you know there's a land war raging in Europe, um, it is no longer controversial to say that that an, that a strong America is important.
2: And you recently had an article uh, where you talked about why it's critical f- to invest in America and how VCs should approach. Um, American dynamism, and, but also how, how VC shouldn't necessarily how VC should be approaching China. W- why don't you unpack the argument you, you, you're making there?
1: Yeah, so I mean, the, the the argument we're making is that you know Silicon Valley has to be involved in this conversation that Washington has on on the important needs, of, like the, the needs serving the needs of citizens, but also thinking through our place in the world. And for a long time, Silicon Valley sort of stuck its head in the sand and said, we don't really want to be part of this political conversation. We're building things over in California. We're doing our own thing. Please leave us alone. And that's not possible anymore. And I think like you kind of have to go back to like 2010, 2011 and kind of realize, you know, the last decade has been fundamentally transformative for tech as an industry, but also for for the country where, where tech is no longer this little kind of. Thing out in the in the shadows. It, it, it is American dynamism. It is the way that we build things now. Like the venture backed model is how we build new com- companies in America, and, it, and increasingly, it's how we build companies in the world or, or in the world, you know, in, in, in capitalist uh, countries. Um, and so, so it can't be divorced from our regulatory sector. It can't be divorced from um, the way that we provide citizens with civic goods. Um, and there has to be, I'd say a stronger partnership and a stronger relationship between those two entities and also an understanding of, of what we're good at, you know, Silicon Valley. And I use Silicon Valley broadly. I don't mean it's no longer a place in California that's changed. You know, one of the things I talk about in the article is that, you know, I've been, we, we launched this practice, uh, 18 months ago. I haven't made a single investment in San Francisco, um, which I think is, is, is shocking to people or in in San Francisco, Silicon Valley broadly. I mean, I've, I've made investments across the country, uh, in various states, and I think that is that is new and so it, you know in some ways it's like tech has sort of finally achieved its promise of being able to to kind of you know be anywhere a kid in kansas can build a company in the same way that a kid in silicon valley or new york city can and so that that that's that's fundamentally a good thing but we still have this sort of issue of Washington being deeply skeptical of what Silicon Valley does and Silicon Valley being deeply skeptical of what Washington does. And I think ultimately they're gonna have to come together in order to, to solve some of these big civic problems.
2: What do you say to people who say, actually we should be working with China and being much more collaborative and maybe we can convert them into an ally, uh, you know, more the carrot versus the, the stick approach?
1: Yeah, so I think that was, that was what we tried 10 years ago. You know, that, that was, that was certainly an approach that, that people believed in. And, and that was why, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of companies, a lot of, a lot of firms, but also just a lot of, you know, a lot of leaders across, um, across industry and across government believed that that was possible. And I don't, I don't hear anyone reasonable saying that anymore. People aren't, there are people not saying things. There are people who are quiet, but no one is saying, oh, we can work with Xi Jinping. Like no, no (laughs) one, no one's saying the CCP is going to be a great partner for America. China's not even saying that, Uh, you know, the new, the new ambassador to the U.S. uh, uh, spoke publicly yesterday to American citizens, and it was probably the most uh, flamboyant and sort of hardcore message to Americans. Like like, we're not like there's, we're sort of the ship has sailed on sort of that philosophy. Um, And I think, I think everyone kind of realizes that, but, but I do also think like, you know, American dynamism isn't just about sort of the, the relationship that we have with other nations, the relationship with China, um, or defense, like American dynamism is, is fundamentally about like, how do we improve America? How do we stop stagnation? How do we solve the problems that we all know exist things like housing, things like access to education, access to good education that actually helps you get a job? How do we, how do we use technology to solve these core problems? Knowing that for there, there are unique reasons why we have these problems in America that don't necessarily translate to other countries. They could translate to other countries and to, to allied nations as well. But I think it, it's really sort of a put your head down and sort of how will we solve these problems that are that are unique to us from first principles. And, and the exciting thing is the founders that we've worked with, um, that message really resonates. And it's not a mes- message that we necessarily like came up with. It's a message that we were hearing constantly from founders, particularly post COVID. And it, it, it feels like now is, you know, we're, we're at the early end of a, of a, you know, 10, 20, 30 year sort of story of, of people really using technology to solve these core issues
2: for their communities. Th- those are e- easy to, to to get behind. Um, but over the past few decades, people have used the term national interest to justify uh, foreign interventions uh, in the name of exporting uh, democracy. Uh, so w- what's the American dynamism perspective on, uh, on foreign policy or what it means to think about the national interest uh, outside of the U.S.?
1: Well, it, it's interesting because you know we like to say we don't have a State Department at Andreessen Horowitz. Like, we're not trying to craft foreign policy. Like, like that. Like, it's sort of like leave leave unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Like, the government will do what it wants with that, and and they should. The government's really good at making laws. The government's really good at representing the citizens and and crafting foreign policy. I actually think um, the big problem we got into so, uh, Silicon Valley got into. Uh, you know, 10 years ago, was thinking that we could craft our own forward policy and that we could work with various countries and, and, and do certain things that, necess- that the U.S. government didn't necessarily like. And now we're sort of realizing that that's not possible. The thing about American dynamism is that it is it is deeply focused on founders who ultimately want to solve problems for their communities and want to focus on things that are that are affecting them that they see firsthand. And so, you know, it, it looks different than a lot of other practices or a lot of other categories of technology for that reason. Like, we, we, you know, we've invested in multiple veterans um, who've, who've served their country, who've come back and said, you know what, I really would have liked to have um, when I was at war. Um, or, you know, we've invested in, in former FBI agents who have built software products because they weren't using software. They were using thumb drives when, when communicating with, with large companies that, you know, that, <laughs> that that are building the software of the future. So the, the types of companies that we're investing in are really, really, they're specific problems that people have experienced as they've worked for government or as they've served their country or, or as they've been in their community saying, why doesn't this exist? And they're they're solving it. And they're solving it in different regions than before. Um, they're solving it in different ways than before. Oftentimes, they're tied to the physical world, which is a huge part of this. For a very long time, investors in Silicon Valley didn't like hardware. They they didn't like investing in things that were tied to physical, you know, f- physical constraints. And I'd say like that that is that has been appended. Like that that's now um, no longer you know no longer an existing meme
2: some people hear your response and say yeah silicon valley and dc have disentangled and what we need to do is get silicon valley talent in dc and there have been these uh organizations to try to get people to work for government with kind of middling um success or you know mixed results why is that the wrong approach Or, or why is that the wrong framing for for the problem
1: so i don't necessarily think it's it's the wrong approach i actually think we need a more um you know, a more technical workforce in government. That's actually one of the reasons why I'm excited about the trend line showing that the vast majority of young people going into colleges now are, are doing more technical degrees. Uh, we need those people to go work in Washington in the bureaucracy and have an understanding of how technology works. So I am all for sort of these tech transfers between, you know, East and West and, and kind of bringing that together, but it's not going to be how we build the next SpaceX. Um, the, the next SpaceX will be built by people who are, you know, Radically convinced that their view of the future and of their their methodology for building um, is going to result in a massive company and a massive sea change in how you know how how, how a sector is built. Um, and we and we know we know what that looks like in Silicon Valley. Uh, there's a certain type of profile that builds these extraordinary companies. They're a little quirky. They're very serious. Uh, they're seen as off, as we've talked about in the past, Eric. They're seen as very off in terms of uh, you know they're not normal people. Um, And they're able to corral a group of misfits together that have both technical and just superhuman abilities in terms of how they build and how fast they move um, around a mission to to build an extraordinary company. And that's all like we've done that in America for, you know, for a very long time. Like, that's how we build. Um, Yes, there are examples in in your previous generations of when the government has been able to put massive amounts of money to work around a a key mission. We haven't done that recently. Um, In my lifetime, we haven't done that. Um, and the way that we've achieved extraordinary things since I've been born um, as a millennial, uh, born in the 80s, was through companies, uh, you know, using either the venture capital model, which has become more common um, over the last few years, uh, but, but people coming together and building things outside of the bounds of government. And so I, I think we need to continue doing that. But I think we need to continue doing that in a way where government is working hand in hand with Silicon Valley. Um, and ensuring that the critical needs, whether they be defense needs, education needs, housing needs are met uh, because this is the only way that we're going to to meet the needs of, of citizens in this country.
2: It's the only way because the private sphere has the right um, sort of incentives, basically to acquire the best talent, the, acquire, the best talent needs to be incentivized in a proper way and, and given the room to run.
1: So I, I think there's, there's a number of reasons, but yes, I think, I think there, the division between the public and the private sector, has, and the delta between not only you know the economic delta, the status delta, the fulfillment delta, if we're going to use a millennial term in terms of what you know young people are looking for in their careers, all of that has gotten wider and wider and wider. I think Mad Men sort of explains a lot of what the country is today. And there's a scene in Mad Men where you're watching sort of these high power ad executives who the equivalent would be hedge fund managers, investment bankers, very elite uh, Manhattan jobs. They're leaving their their swanky restaurant to go back home, and Don Draper gets in his Cadillac, very fancy car in the '60s, you know, w- w- when it was when it was filmed, and he goes home to what seems like a very nice middle to you know middle to upper class house, but there's no helipad, you know, he d- he doesn't live in a compound. And it would have looked very similar to what someone who worked at the CIA, someone who worked at the White House, someone who worked in Washington, if they were coming back from a fancy meal in Washington DC, they would have gone to the suburbs of Northern Virginia and gone to a similar house, which is to say that there wasn't as big of a Delta between the most elite high status jobs in Manhattan in the sixties and the most elite high status jobs in Washington in the sixties. And now, there is a massive, massive difference between if you work in government and if you work in private sector and that change, I think, is fundamentally why you see young people who go to terrific schools and major in international studies or government or politics and, you know, they they, they have sort of the ability to go into the bureaucracy and vast majority of those young people decide that they got want to go work in the private sector and they ultimately go work in the private sector so this is not a new thing it's not something that like is even that controversial in the in the late 80s actually paul volcker was the chairman of a commission um, that he deemed a quiet crisis which was why is the bureaucracy being decimated in this country why is it that we cannot recruit young people to work inside of government uh, for long careers um and that was in you know 1989 1990. Uh, so where are we now? Uh, things have only gotten worse. And so the idea that government can do these things without the help of the private sector, or that government can decide how things are going to be built and and sort of keep the private sector at arm's bay, as as, as has been you know as be, has been the case for for you know how how government likes to work, it, it's it's just not tenable. Um, there's going to have to be a deeper partnership, and there's going to have to be an understanding that the people going into technology, um, and and particularly the young people who are very equipped. In, in understanding how technology works are, are going to have to be a part of all of the solutions um, that government that government needs to provide its citizens.
0: Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Over 100 startups launched today. Do you know who they are? If you're not seeing interesting startups, none of your downstream processes matter. How you source deals at the earliest stages could be your most consequential investment harmonic is the most complete startup database finding new companies as soon as they incorporate and tracking them through ipo you can create a search tailored to your investment thesis in one search filter over company data including venture stage industry and geography founders and operators backgrounds and traction metrics like headcount changes social media audience and web traffic growth importantly harmonic instantly surfaces warm connections to help you connect with founders the results are delivered on autopilot wherever you most need them over Slack, email, or via API directly into your CRM, integrating seamlessly into your software stack. Learn why Craft, Bedrock, NEA, and hundreds more trust Harmonic's data by visiting harmonic.ai or use the link in the description. Make sure you mention our podcast, Turpentine VC, during your demo. So Some public-minded
2: people hear this and they, they think something is really lost by the idea that much of our um, sort of services that used to be um, given by the government are now better served by the private sector. And I, I remember when I was in college, there was this uh, book we read called The Rise of Neoliberalism that lamented the rise of privatization a- across everything. I'm curious why, uh, h- how one would respond to that. To me, the mental model is either something has to be controlled by an individual person like SpaceX and Elon, you know, CEO, or it's this kind of unaccountable bureaucracy that is neither accountable to the market nor to a voting base. Like most government agencies um, you know, they don't, um, they can't either can't get fired or m- many people can't get fired and th- we don't vote for them. Um, and so there's this kind of myth that uh, it's all democratically elected and democratically accountable. I- is, is that your read too? Or what, what's the right way of thinking about the trade-offs between privatization and, and uh, you know, the opposite?
1: I'm more interested in the question of who gets results. Um, so I think a lot of the people who are most focused on who has the power in that situation, you know, it's a very academic question. It's something that people like debate. debate. Um, you know, Washington's always very interested in who has the power and that's sort of, you know, I'd say sort of a feature or, 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 or a way that Washington thinks, uh, but like the thing that most citizens care about is, am I getting these services delivered on time? But that's like, that's, that's what people care about. Like, and, and, and so I, you know, part of the reason why tech has, you know, such a high favorability rating, if you look at all of the Pew polls on, you know, what do you think about various companies, um, and, and sort of how do you interface with technology by and large, most Americans love technology because it means that their packages are delivered faster. You know, people love twenty-four uh, hour shipping. Uh, it means that they're getting great content delivered to their phones. Uh, it means that they can keep in touch with their grandkids. Like people love these magical experiences, um, and I think you know there there is a conversation to be had of how government and tech work together. That is important. I'm not diminishing it, but in terms of you know, arguing, well, who should be making the decisions or isn't it a terrible thing that we now live in a society where the only way that things get done is in the private sector. It's like, you know, that's an academic debate for academics, but like we're losing time. (laughs) Like people really, people really want to solve these problems and these are problems that get worse by the day. So, you know, I think that's a less interesting question than the how question of like, how do we solve these in the least amount of time to make sure that the most people benefit from technological innovation in these categories.
2: Education is a fascinating, um, sector to look at this, you know, problem with because, and we've invented in both invested in a company that enables school choice, but education is a, is a sector that largely hasn't had a lot of private sector innovation because it's, it's been disallowed in the name of, uh, sort of, you know, like s- broader societal flourishing or, or sort of, uh, equity and yet the education system is, is so broken on, on, on so many levels and yet innovation has just been slower than, than we wanted the past couple decades.
1: There, there's so many different ways to look at education, whether we're talking about higher education, whether we're talking about vocational education, whether we're talking about, um, you know, the COVID sort of raised the concern of early childhood education, which is totally different than even sort of elementary education. I mean, these are, uh, various stages in life where, where things have completely broken down. You mentioned, um, education savings accounts and a company that were both investors in Odyssey. uh, I do think that COVID woke people up and people now particularly parents now recognize that the sort of promise of, well, I went to a public school or I went to a parochial school and had a great education and didn't have to think much about it and I just went to the school that was closest to me. That is just not uh, a, a privilege that parents have today. They have to think through how am I actually going to be active participants in my child's education? just given the, the degradation of education broadly in this country, um, particularly because, and, and I think this is something that's often left out of the discourse, you know, elementary education in this country was developed in the late 19th century. The focus was on literacy. The focus was on, can we make sure that the vast majority of Americans in this country can read? Not like read Kant, but just like read normal things. And and, and, and it actually was very successful. You know, like, like, like getting a, a, a country to be literate um, was, you know, in, in the, in the late 19th century, like, like it was a successful methodology, but we now live in the 21st century, uh, where, you know, you know, a couple, a couple months ago, the world kind of woke up to the idea that like the world that we previously lived in before, uh, widely available artificial intelligence, you know, like, like, like the world is now different and it will look different going forward and how people interface with intelligent systems will, will look different as well. And so the idea that we need to have the exact same curriculum that our grandparents had um, in elementary school and that we have to have the exact same curriculum that our parents uh, or grandparents had uh, because this is how teachers have been educated and this is how they like educating their, cho- their their students. There needs to be a broader conversation of how we are going to change education for the 21st century. And we've never had that happen. It started with COVID out of necessity, uh, but I actually think now we're going to have sort of the technological sea change that's gonna cause people to say, this is not how we should be educating kids. That um, this, the, the subjects, the the division of subjects, the the methodology of learning, um, that that is for a bygone era, and it has been for a bygone era for a long time. So I'm hopeful um, that that there will be you know changes in that in that regard. You mentioned that it's very difficult to make changes on 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 any type of education, particularly elementary education. Uh, but I think something like ESAs that gives parents the, the, the opportunity to choose how they're going to spend the dollars that would have been allocated um, to, 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 to school, you know, to, to educate their child. Um, it gives them the opportunity to decide how they're going to spend the dollars. I think that is probably the most fair way um, for, for parents to decide to take bets on their children's own education um, and to also, you know, know the needs of their child. Like, you know, parents know better than anyone right now, given what they had to go through in COVID how their children learn and what their children learn and what they're interested in. And so getting them more involved in the process of education, I think is is is, is a net good for society.
2: You've, you've talked about how one of the reasons why uh, there was a status decrease in working for the government is that is because of the when we took away the draft, the mandatory draft in, in the 70s. Um, what, what do you think is something we should do to reinstill uh, a greater need for public service or or make working government higher status again?
1: Yeah, and I don't know that it was even the status thing. I think it was more of a understanding of sacrifice for your country and understanding of sacrifice for your fellow man. Um, And to go back to Mad Men, I know I'm talking about Mad Men a lot, but it really is, I think the show that sort of encapsulates American stagnation and sort of American change um, and and sort of does it in a, in a, a very great way. Um, there's this epic scene in Mad Men where Roger Sterling uh, is talking to Honda, which was a, a you know, it, it's a Japanese company. And it's 20 years after the end of World War II. And he refuses to be in the meeting. He's he's very rude to them. He gets kicked out of the meeting by Don Draper, who's the protagonist, um, because he says, I, 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 I served in World War II. And it's it still very raw. I lost friends. I think, like, that's the quote. I lost friends there. Um, and Don Draper has to say, like, You fought. Like you you fought this war so that we could be in a safer world and now we are in a safer world. So move on. And that was sort of the view of how, you know, and and Don Draper fought in Korea. It was like you looked at all of these executives that were, you know, at at the height of their careers and they had all served in live wars. They had all sacrificed for their country. They had all seen horrific things. And their country then told them, Thank you for your service. Now get back to work. And everyone had that experience. And now it's it's been completely divided, where the vast majority of people who go into the military are not, um, you know, elites going to top universities. Like it's not as common of an experience. It's become more of a, you know, I think, I think there's something like seven states account for more than 51% of, of enlisted men and women. Um, and it's not necessarily even the biggest states by population, um, you know, it, the, the military has become a much more siloed experience in this country. Um, and the military used to be a proxy for serving your country. So we've lost sort of the thing that one creates binds between people of different regions, socioeconomic class, uh, different belief systems. Where when you're when you're when you're you know, serving and fighting alongside someone who's different than you, but you're fighting for the same beliefs, um, that creates a camaraderie that this country had until 1973. And so I I think in some ways that 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 can't necessarily be replicated by by you know. Other types of sur- service organizations, or by a college experience that excludes uh, people based on income in many ways in, in this country, or, or people based on class in, in this country. Um, so, so how do we replicate it? I don't know. I, I you know, I, I think there's been lots of ideas about, oh well, can we create a, a, a national call to public service that would ne- like their their pipe dreams? No one would ever vote into. You know, into law, a system that says every American between the ages of 18 to 20 has to serve in a certain capacity—it'd be nice, but that's just not going to happen. We don't have the will for that. So I don't know how we replicate a system that that forces people to believe in something greater than themselves um, and to sacrifice something—that that to sacrifice something that's greater than than what they have. Like we we don't have that experience anymore. That's universal across this country, um, and it's probably the biggest change in the last 50 years that no one talks about
2: and and has a lot of sort of secondary effects that we may not appreciate like we've been talking with our friend Antonio or, or he's claimed that Israel's uh, mandatory conscript, conscription uh, maybe even inspires things like uh you keeping their birth rate high because people you know settle down early or become adults sooner in their lives and start to think about the future uh and uh maybe that leads them to you know take their 20s more seriously and have kids earlier.
1: You no, know, no, I mean, there's probably a lot of downstream effects, but it also, I mean, I'd say the, the, the sort of immediate effect and, and, you know, anyone who served in the military and even in the all volunteer forces is very much the case that you meet people from different, exp- you know, different walks of life. It, it's the most diverse organization in the country. Uh, you meet people who have, you know, different experiences, different viewpoints, and you're forced to work alongside of them. Whereas you can't say the same thing about Google. It's not this, you know, you, you can't say the same thing about Harvard, um, you know, like like the institutions that have sort of replaced for, for, for pockets of society, um, the institutions that would have replaced this experience at the ages of 18, 19, 20, do not offer the same sort of, you know, rigor, but also the same sort of you have to work with people who are different than you, which I think sets you up very well um, for the rest of your life. Um, and, you know, most most Americans don't get
2: that anymore. Shifting gears a little bit. One thing I've reflected on is Elon taking over Twitter and then just imp- like a whole regime change um, and making it a new uh, kind of you know sp- act like a startup again um, in terms of being able to ship new products and and sort of reinvigorating. And of course, when you're a startup, things are messy, has shown me that that could happen at a massive institution to which Balaji says, yeah, it could happen in a company, but it can't happen at a government level. But it seems like FDR did that to to, to some degree or uh, it seems that there have been some presidents who've been able to implement kind of a, I don't say a different regime, but just a wholesale like reset of some institutions that uh, were a hundred years old or many decades old. Um, and, and some people are calling for things like that in certain agencies. Do you think that that is, is uh, potentially practical or, or potentially where, where things could go or what do you take even from, from that idea?
1: I think SpaceX is a better example than Twitter because Elon Musk was seen as this sort of crazy guy who, who said, I'm going to kind of reshape the launch industry and we're going to go to Mars. And it's a perfect example of Washington ignoring him uh, for a very long time until it became impossible to ignore that the he had built um, you know, the, be- the best rockets, that he had made them reusable, that he had completely transformed an industry that would not have been able to transform itself with insiders. And I'd say, actually, that is the best example of an American dynamism story, an American dynamism spirit, where you don't have to... You know, like, like the sort of burn it all down approach is not tenable, but the, I'm going to build something and I'm going to show you that it works and you're going to come see it. And, and ultimately then you are going to work hand in hand with me on, on these problems. like. That that is a success story, and it's a success story not only for the private sector and for for companies like SpaceX. It's a success story for the American government, uh, and one that should be touted across across the world. Look at what we were able to build. Look at look at the you know look at the companies that we've been able to, to foster, and look at look at how we're now working hand in hand. Um, and we're not the CCP. We're not um, top down telling our best technologists what they are going to build and how they're going to build it. Um, we are letting private competition, and we are letting private enterprise build the best companies in the world. And so I actually think there's many success stories. there's going to be many more success stories because SpaceX has been so successful because companies like Anduril and the defense space are following in their wake. but, but I don't think that it's uh, we need to you know burn burn everything down and and not you know and, and sort of uh, exit exit what we've built because some things aren't working.
2: To to that end, uh, we're we're certainly not China um, and and we do do things differently, but one thing you said we we can learn from them is how close their private and public sector works together on some of the most important problems. Um, Why don't you say more about exactly what we should do that reminds you of of what they do?
1: Sure. So, I mean, I I think the the DOD is probably the place where we have the best, you know, I'd say technology has the best relationships because there is a procurement regime. Um, there, There always has been a standing... Uh, defense industrial base that is supposed to work with, you know, hand in hand with the department of defense. So there is sort of laws that have already been built. Yes, there are companies, uh, that have been around hundred years that get 40%, you know, there's five companies that get 40% of the, of the procurement budget every year, which is, which is sort of insane, uh, given how old they are and given that they, you know, that they aren't sort of modernized in terms of their approach. Uh, but there is at least a methodology for procuring technology. And you know what? What we've seen that works, and it's very different than the CCP model. Is you are going to be told exactly what to do, and if you don't comply, there will be consequences. That is an authoritarian model. Um, and sometimes you you could make the argument. Actually, Palmer Lucky, who's the the founder of Anduril, makes this argument. It's probably an easier way uh, to to oftentimes make companies and make technology. But we have a different model that that should be and should be prized, which is which is capitalism, which is let the best technologies win. Like let there be robust competitiveness. Um, and real competitiveness, not like faux competitiveness of innovation theater, where then the contracts all go to Lockheed Martin because they've been around the longest, which is oftentimes what happens. Uh, but real competitiveness, like who can create the best rocket? Whoever can create the best rocket gets the contract. It's it's a very simple thing. Um, and I think that that is what we need more of. And honestly, that's where we're moving more towards. And I actually, I, I'm hopeful, maybe I'm naive, but I'm hopeful uh, that we're seeing the Department of Defense sort of wake up and, and have been over the last few years and saying, Okay, AI is very different uh, than battleships. Uh, having having autonomy in a lot of our systems um, and and building next generation capabilities is going to come from from new companies, and therefore we have to be able to make decisions fast, and we have to be able to award real contract
2: dollars. One you mentioned earlier about you know America being a great place to to come build a family and a and a and a life for your family. You 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 have a quote here uh you've said previously i've always believed that much of american life and history is experienced through the rise and fall of families how is that true for your family and uh, unpack that
1: yeah and i and 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 i'll have to say it's not my quote i mean like that quote has been repurposed in so many like the it was the what the hallmark quote of the departed which of course is one of the greatest mafia films ever created daniel hawthorne you know said something similar like these the the, uh, not an original thought at all i think a lot you know it's interesting like i was reflecting actually with you and a few others on sort of the life extension movement in Silicon Valley. And I think that is a very specific Silicon Valley millennial movement where people only think about their lifespan. It's like zero to 80, 100, maybe 120, if, if you know all this stuff works out, whatever. Um, and they don't think about it, uh, we're, we're, you know they don't think about it through the life of their family. Um, other cultures I think are much better at this than the sort of American individualist experience of I exist on this earth as part of a long story of the family, and my life is not, uh, you know, over at whatever age I die at because I have, you know, children who carry on the legacy, carry on the name, carry on the experience of the family, and these family stories actually matter. Um, and I very much come from a tradition like that. Oftentimes, you only hear people talk about like bringing shame to their families uh, if they're, you know, first generation Americans or whatnot. Um, I, I'm not, my, my grandfather was an immigrant from Ireland. I have, you know, I, I say in some ways, the, the experience of my family comes from their beginnings as, you know, very poor. I, the two things they had in common, uh, you know, my, my paternal grandfather came from Ireland at the turn of the 19th century, uh, ended up in the coal mines, fought in World War I. My maternal grandfather fought in World War II, uh, grew up as, you know, one of 12 children, didn't have, graduated from eighth grade, but didn't have a high school education and drove a truck his entire life. And so when you look at two generations to go from that experience in America of driving trucks, coal mines, fighting in wars, uh, coming over on boats, um, to, to sitting here and having a conversation with you, um, that's an extraordinary American story. And again, it's an extor- it's a story that's becoming less and less true for, for, for people. And there's reasons why very ordinary men were able to benefit from hyper growth Um, strong public and private investment in technology, a strong investment in education, all of these things that I think were the hallmarks of the 20th century, very ordinary people and very ordinary families were able to go from working class, working poor to middle class. That is changing. And that I think is probably the question of my life, the story of my life, how how I ended up escaping that. There's probably some reasons for that, luck being a huge portion of that. But I also think like there is sort of this question of, believing the memes that society gives you. And for too long, for the millennial generation in particular, there has been this meme that you cannot escape your past. Um, you know, that, that, that everything is, you know, is sort of set in stone. Um, there has been sort of an epic focus on the culture war versus on actually doing things and building things. And I look to those generations of people who didn't know that much or think that much, but they did a lot and they believed that they could escape their past. And I think that meme is really powerful and important. And it's one that we have to kind of reignite as a society that you can escape and, and, and that you can kind of carry on and better yourselves versus what your parents had or what the previous generation had and see that sort of betterment as a success story in and of itself versus like, oh, well, you know, where am I in my individualist life? You know, this little like thing that that is such a kind of tiny moment in time. So that, that's, that's sort of a convoluted way of saying that I think the family is far more important than the individual um, and that it's an institution that's understudied, under um, underutilized in many ways and that the status of it um, or people seeing it as something that can help them achieve what their goals are in life. That's sort of been memed out of, out of the story of why it's so important.
2: So much of, of society seems more so than it was a few decades ago kind of anti-family or, or less excited about the family or anti-parent, you know, less excited about p- parenting or, or being a mother, even is that just because of, of the rise of the celebration of the individual, The sort of, you know, that everyone's got this trauma they've got to work through and the work is never done and, and they just have to have to do that work. And that's an individual task or what what's your kind of a, a, you know, broad assessment as to why the rise of, of, uh, of anti-family or, or anti-parenting like sentiment in, in the culture.
1: So that's, that's a huge portion. I think of it, you know, like you and I've talked about, you know, triumph of the therapeutic and sort of books that have said, you know, there was this movement of looking outward. And I think it goes back to the conversation we just had about um, the draft and public service, but, you know, there used to be sort of this society had expectations of you and there was suffering, there was sacrifice. um, And it was sort of outside of the bounds of your control and that sort of shifted. Um, And when it shifted, there's arguments about when it shifted but this sort of movement towards, we are gonna look inward and we're going to look for fulfillment in ourselves. That's sort of a modern American conception. Um, it's not, you know, I think people often talk about sort of the individualist American sort of sentiment. Um, that, I think it's different. I think it's a, a variation on that theme, but it's more, I'm gonna look inside myself. I'm going to know myself. I'm going to to, to focus on trauma, focus on the things that have happened in my history. And, and that's going to be sort of the, the unique sort of identity that I put forth to the world—I don't think that's been a very helpful philosophy in terms of building things. Um, in terms of in terms of being an interesting person, you know, like having stories, being really focused on yourself, maybe, but like it hasn't actually helped people achieve more than their grandparents achieved.
2: I've heard it be described as the difference from honor culture to dignity culture, whereas honor culture is much more uh, external and are you serving your your family and your community and, and, and your society and dignity culture is kind of, are you being recognized in the way that you wanna be recognized, right? Like particip- participation, um, trophies. So you mentioned this is sort of a kind of, uh, you, you mentioned this is somewhat of a, of a distortion of, of an American value, but you also, I believe read uh, a bit about, how th- there was some influence from, from Vienna on, 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 this, um, this, this worldview. Is there, is there anything worth sharing about what that influence was?
1: I, I recently mentioned I had a hard time getting a job out of college. Actually out of my master's program. Um, I, uh, I did everything wrong in my twenties. It's a, a longer story, but I didn't have any skills. I graduated into the great recession. And my first job uh, was actually au pair. Uh, I was a nanny. Uh, and it's so funny because, you know, I, I, it's like, a it's not something that comes up in my, my current line of work, but I learned a lot from taking care of children when I was 23, 24. Um, and I did it in Vienna. Um, it, you know, I, 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 it was, it was one of these things where it's like, I can either sit at home or I can do grunt work. I'm a huge believer in grunt work. Um, I think not enough young people do grunt work, um, and, and sort of understand, um, that not everything is a salary job with healthcare. Um, that sometimes you have to work. Um, I, you know, like, like not every, not everyone has that experience. I was really fortunate in looking back to have that experience at the time. Um, was not fortunate to have that experience, um, but but decided that I, if I was going to go, you know, do this type of grunt work, um, and I and and have a job, um, that I needed to do it in a place where I could learn a new language and, and and that sort of thing. So ended up in Vienna. It was a place that I've always been fascinated by, and I lived about a block away from Freud's house. Uh, which I thought was really interesting at the time. But it's like, if you spend time in Vienna, you realize that it is an underexplored, understudied city in world history, uh, but also the impact that that tiny little pocket in time of the late 19th century, particularly when there were writers and dreamers and artists and and philosophers and, and frankly, like psychology was born in these coffee houses that has now been exported across the world as the only way to understand your your, your mind. Like the, the, the dominant theory of mind is the kind of Freudian psychology of what happens to you in your childhood, that you need to dive deep into the depths of your soul through talk therapy. Um, this 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 was seen as an extremist philosophy in the 19th century and sort of the experiments that were done and you know, it's like living next to Freud's house, I, I, I went to the museum a lot. These experiments were, that were done on what were known as hysterical women at the time, hysterical rich women um, were frankly very cruel um, you know, a lot of the kind of history around sort of how this, 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 you know, kind of, uh, practice developed is, is actually quite raw and quite cruel. And, uh, and so my experience in Vienna was, was sort of seeing this kind of niche pocket of history, having this extraordinary impact on American society when there's a whole other sort of theory of mind and many other theories of mind that could have taken kind of precedent. And so that's a question that I have, I don't have an answer to it as to why some sort of very extremist doctors in a time, a very precarious time in a city that was going through tremendous change, and in, in you know, in advance of World War One. Um, why that is now the dominant sort of way that the Western world views um, views our story? I, I don't know. I, I I don't know if you have an answer.
2: Yeah, Mark Andreessen has this quote. He said publicly about how capitalism absorbs dissent and like converts it into a luxury good or something. And I, wonder if there's something applicable here where, you know, um, to the extent that for it is like the, or this idea is like the satisfaction of one's desires and capitalism in, in some ways is, is about the satisfaction of one desires. And, you know, m- maybe with a, you know, more, if, we, if society has a bunch of religion, um, or religious fabric or certain traditions that kind of channel desires or suppress s- certain desires, um, that, that can work. But when that kind of erodes over time or, or gets muted among a certain elite class or a certain class, and it's all, all you have is the satisfaction of desires. And, you know, individualism is very uh, sort of, you know, simpatico with that. Maybe it's, uh, it works in conjunction with uh, with our, our modern economy and our, our lack of sort of shared, um, you know, religious fabric.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, my, my, my view is that memes are powerful. And part of me is like, well, well, Freud must've been the, the best at making memes because you had Adler at the same time. And it, if people haven't read uh, uh, The Courts the Be Disliked, uh, it's a great book on what could have been, a totally different philosophy of, you know, how, how to, how to overcome things like anxiety, how to overcome things, um, you know, like, like family history, um, or, or family trauma, uh, you know, but operating in the exact same time, you know, you often think about like, we're living in a time where a lot of the most powerful and most interesting technologists all know each other. And 200 years from now, many of them will be forgotten. And some of their theories will be 100% dominant in terms of how people view uh, how technology should be built. We don't know who those people will be. Um, and you could say the same thing about kind of, you know, 19th century Vienna, where there were a lot of different philosophers and psychologists and doctors and people practicing and, and writers, and some of those theories turned into memes, like everyone needs to go to therapy, which is a Freudian beam, but Adler must've been really terrible at marketing his ideas. Like that that's sort of my takeaway is that like there were lots of people operating at the same time, but some of them were, were good marketers. And what would have been if we had gone with the exact opposite theory, which, you know, the Adlerian theory is, it doesn't matter what happened to you in your childhood, that you, every day is a new day, like focus on the future. Don't focus on the past. Actually don't dig deep into your past because there's nothing you can do about it. And I do think that for a while that was sort of the dominant American philosophy People came here from other countries to forget about the horrors of what had happened to them and their families. Um, and it was, we're going to build something new. We're going to hit the frontier. And we're only going to go forward because the past was so horrific. That That is not the culture that we have now.
2: Yeah. We also talked about two books that, that kind of describe the different poles here. One is the body keeps the score and sort of discovering, you know, trauma. You didn't even know you had this kind of thing. Um, and then the other is the mind is flat which is a lot of the traumas is, is invented and reified by us, like continuing to believe it exists and a lot more is up to us that, that, than we think. I um, mean those are both uh, kind of physiological books about how, how the, how the body works that say, say and imply very, very different things.
1: You don't want to talk about my experience?
2: Your nanny and experience. <laughs> I, I, I do believe in grunt work. The, the, I, I was a manager for the men's basketball team at Michigan, University of Michigan, and also at IMG Academy. And uh, that was my first job after college as well. Um, and that was, um, you know, a glorified water boy and, and rebounder and just full on bitch work. Like the players didn't even know my name. Like I, I as well that existed, but I, um, but I'd never worked harder in my life. And there's just something about just like being on the total bottom and just hundred percent grinding. And um, that, it, that is just really inspiring and, uh, you know, uh, edifying and codifying and, you know, formative. Um, and so.
1: Why did you choose to do that? Like, I actually, I actually think this is probably one of the biggest problems with our generation is very few people. Like, I love asking people if they ever waitressed. like I waitressed in college. Like, did you do that? Why did you do it? Did you do it? Because it seemed like a fun job. Did you do it? Cause you had to do it. What did you learn from it? You know, like, I, those are questions that I, you know, oftentimes don't come up in, in interview situations, but they tell you a lot about people. Um, if you've worked physical labor, if you've, if you, as you said, if you, if you've been at the bottom where people don't know your name, um, or people see you as a shadow, that can be, you know, it, it can light a fire under you. It can teach you a lot about how society works, can teach you how to work with different types of people to, to, to serve people, uh, who think they're better than you. Um, I. I think those experiences, sadly, are, are are being siloed for for various parts of the population, and for the people that we interact with in, you know, in, in elite culture, um, oftentimes they haven't had those experiences. Whereas, you know, 50 years ago, it's like it, it matters that Jeff Bezos worked at McDonald's when he was in high school. But how many CEOs have that experience now?
2: No, it's uh, it's fascinating this idea of, of earning your uh, earning your stripes. It's a it's a sacrifice. Going back to a sacrifice portion of of, of of an even service to some degree related to that we were talking about anti-family anti-motherhood you know life is tough for the lower class men these days uh you know 40 percent of men uh go to college as opposed to you know 60 percent of, of women and you know much of manual labor has you know been um either automated or uh, outsourced now you you hopefully are bringing back um you know some of these jobs to to, to the us but how do we think about and then that's separate from sort of the um values shift from some traditional masculine values that used to be celebrated to now um them expecting to be more more feminine or or shun some some of their masculine values some of them are are even uh you know demonized in in, in certain ways how do we think about restoring uh dignity and opportunity for sort of the median uh, or or lower class men uh going forward how do we think about that
1: it's a really good question i think there's many compounding factors we're now in a place where i think they it's now majority of the workforce is women majority of the knowledge workforce is women majority of college graduates i mean this was even you know 15 years ago majority of college graduates were women um, so when they say the future is female it's not just a catchphrase it's it's very much the very people who are able to procreate in society are also the ones who are doing the vast majority of the work um, that is new uh, for history. Like that is new for that, like that, that has never been done before. Um, so we are in the midst of a extraordinary experiment in terms of, um, you know, in terms of the question of how do we support men? Um, I I actually think it it starts earlier, which is how do we support boys? Um, I don't think it's just men become adults and then they're not achieving. I actually think, you know, from what I've seen, I'm, I'm the mother of two boys, the very little glimpses of this that I've seen is that like, A lot of boyhood is demonized um, in our current education system, Um, and you know, there's there's you know people who've written far more about this um, than me, um, but or you know, it's something that I've just experienced. Where if you're not sitting in your chair, if you're not reaching certain milestones by the appropriate age, if you're very physical by age two but not very vocal, there's something wrong. And I think that sort of medicalization of what is probably gender difference, which that sort of medicalization of it is not healthy for boys. And, and that if it starts with, with you know the earliest of, I'm in a daycare, I'm in a, you know, a, a kindergarten where my instinct to run around because I just wanna go outside and play is different than the, the kind of teacher's pet, which I was, which was, I wanna sit and read a book um, of course, every adult wants the little girl who's going to sit and read a book or the little boy is going to sit and read a book. But like when we look at sort of differences on a on a wide enough scale, the vast majority of boys want to go around and play with swords in that setting. It becomes, you know, I would say almost a, an early demonization of the boyhood instinct, which kind of in many cases lasts throughout society. Um, you, and we see this through through all levels of, of education, where where girls are performing far better than boys. Where women are performing, you know, there, there's a new study out actually saying that um, women women are in in the three geos um, of of the highest earners. So New York, Los Angeles, Washington D.C. Women under the age of 30 are earning at parity or more than men. So the pay gap is actually being reduced too, um, which you know is, is something that in should be celebrated. Uh, but also says something about sort of the way that we're educating boys or says something about male performance. It shouldn't be zero sum. Um, but I don't think there should I mean, I am probably feel feel the strong I feel very strongly that the 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 wars of the sexes are not healthy for society. Um, that that we should learn to work better together and that we shouldn't have um sort of this demonization of oh, well, girls should succeed. And actually, um uh, there's a great book and
2: Boys and Men, Richard Reeves, who
1: yeah, Richard Reeves has written. Um, you know, about that, you know, it doesn't have to be zero sum, that the success of women over the last 50 years doesn't have to mean um, the downward spiral of men. And we have to figure out how to how to solve that issue um, if we're going to have a, a prosperous society. But I but I don't think it necessarily starts at young men aren't going to college. Why? I think it starts much earlier with uh, little boys are, are active in a way that little girls aren't or um, aren't achieving for some reason in elementary education. And why is that? Um, and we have to be really stoic and really thoughtful about why that's happening.
2: So we're not saying uh, bring bullying back to quote uh, Sam Biddle in what I, I tweet, I believe that started Gamergate, but we're potentially saying, hey, we, maybe we've gone so far on the other side of the spectrum in terms of uh, you know cataloging all male uh, or, or many kind of natural male tendencies as um, problematic by, by their very nature. I mean, and,
1: and definitely. I mean, I, I don't think it has anything to do with bullying. I think it has a lot to do with recognizing that children learn differently and it's not even and and it's across children too it's not just boys learn one way girls i mean that's like very productive and and simple that there are different ways that people learn There are like some people you know you see it early like you see it so early when children are, are are young like like some children just love to take things apart and put things back together other children love to sing other children, you know, like, like, like to read books or like to be told stories or like to communicate with their, with their moms and their dads. And it's like, there's such a variance of how people accumulate knowledge and how people build and create things. And our current system of education really values one way of doing that. And it's, a, and, and that's, that's often because, and, and it's no fault of the teachers themselves. You have an overworked teacher who has 35 kids in a class. and. It will be absolute chaos if they don't all sit in their chair, or if they don't sit in a circle. The only way you can see 35 kids is to put them in a circle, you know? So, so it's, it, 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 it makes sense why we have the systems that we do, but the people who are losing the most are just based on the studies. And we know this are young boys. Like they do not thrive in those environments. And so how can we, can we create environments that allow them to thrive so that they can be promising men who then contribute in society and the workforce? Like this is, this is, if we do not solve this problem in the next decade, there will be dramatic consequences that everyone knows about and no one wants to say.
2: Your, your, uh, father-in-law, uh, Karam, uh, popularized the idea of preference falsification. And, uh, this is the idea that people believe things, but don't want to say, and this is maybe one of the, one of the areas, I mean, the irony to, um, to quote Larry Summers or paraphrase where he talked about how males are higher variants and that they do the, the best in society. You know, their Fortune 500 CEOs, a majority of them, but also the worst in society. Um, and the irony is that that Fortune 500, you know, CEO level will probably continue to be majority men, even if it decreases, but the, uh, you know, median and lower class, you know, college um, sort of, you know, rate percentage or, or just their overall relative to the median and lower class women will continue to drop or continue to get worse. And it will be interesting to see. And, and but people use the justification of, hey, as long as our president and Fortune 500 CEOs are men, I don't want to hear about the problems of middle class or lower class men relative to women. But it'd be interesting to see if there will be kind of a a focus on equalizing that gap as well uh, at the median level and lower level, just like there is at the top level, but reverse gender.
1: You know, w- we oftentimes talked about family formation as imperative for children um, for for a lot of different reasons. Like like I-, I like saying that like families are like families are the example of economies of scale. Like if you have And in in this environment where it is almost impossible to raise a family on one income, if you have two incomes, for one, it it allows for, you know, a better quality of life. Marriage actually does improve quality of life. Like every study shows that. Um, But, but it also, you know, it's also a very civilizing force for men. And it's something that people have, people have been very confident saying that for, for generations. I don't know if we can say that now, but it is very important um, for, for a lot of different reasons in society. And so the fact that we've sort of demonized family formation, or that we've said it's not necessary, or that we say it, it's a choice—it's um, not nece- it doesn't necessarily have to be the backbone of society. I think there's a lot of reasons why families should be the backbone of society, not only to protect children, not only to give them more stable lives, uh, but also because it's a civilizing force for now the the sex that is ultimately going to be left behind in this current um, current you know re- industrial revolution. Like it, it, it is imperative. Um, so I, in some ways I think we we've been studying sort of family formation from a variety of different contexts, and it needs to be studied in terms of how are we going to ensure, you know, that, that men are supportive in in this new, um, in this, in this new era.
2: We've talked a lot about memes in the, in this conversation. Uh, you, you, you had a quote in an interview, we are in a full contact all out war with forces competing for control of our minds. Uh, I, I want you to unpack that, but also just the idea of what, what memes and culture do you think are most either misunderstood or, or most prominent, but we're not paying attention to, to their effects because you're a student of, of, of how these memes influence culture.
1: Nothing is, uh, is innocuous these days, but like I, I'll give an example of one that I think is simple for people to understand and how detrimental it can be. Um, and I wrote about it, um, in, in my, in my piece that I write for, for the, for the free press that it was basically about time about one of the most, reckless memes that has been delivered, particularly to the college educated, particularly to, to millennials and younger is that your twenties don't matter. Is that you have time. Um, and it's one of these things that like, I think has become more common for people to hear as lifespans have got longer. Um, as, as we've sort of created this, you know, uh, this sort of, uh, extended adolescence where, you know, you're 18 and you're old enough to fight in a war, uh, but you're not old enough to, to really think about career or to really think about what you could potentially do for society um, and sort of in, you know, in the piece I talk about like SBF, for example, who the media consistently referred to as a boy or a wonder kid, or, you know, s- someone who, who was really young and successful and you're like, he's 30, you know, he's, he, he's, he's actually in his thirties um, and 30 is old. 30 is old by any stretch of the imagination. Like, even if you're just looking at what is the half-life of the average American man, um, it's late thirties. Um, it may be, it may be a little bit older, like 40 for women. Um, if you're, if you're looking at, you know, it, it's siloing it by very various demos, but like, you know, I, I, think about that a lot. I'm at my half-life midlife. Um, and it, but, but society is telling me that I am extremely young. Um, and why is that? Like, why has that meme been delivered for me? And there's probably reasons for it. It's, it's one is that, um, you know, certain generations want to hold on to power. That's like the more nefarious reading of the meme is that, you know, like, like the, the, that. Older, you know, people are living longer; therefore, they're working longer; therefore, they're in charge of organizations longer. And therefore, um, you know, what what would have been someone being at the peak of their career at thirty, um, now that person will be at the peak of their career at sixty. Um, that's one interpretation of it. Uh, but I also think that it's it's an example of sort of coddling and sort of this view that you don't have to make hard choices in your life, and you certainly don't have to make hard choices in your life when you're best equipped to make hard choices, which is when you don't have children, um, which is when you don't, you know, don't have sort of the same requirements and responsibilities of someone who has people depending on them. And it's just a very dangerous thing to tell children and to, to tell uh, people who are, you know, entering adulthood. Um, and it is by like, by and large, the thing that I hear the most often is like, okay, I'm only 25. I don't have to have my life figured out. But like, how great would it be if you had your life figured out? How great would it be if you knew who your spouse was? If you knew what you wanted your career to be? How great would it be if you had a five-year plan where at 30, you'd be operating at something that's compounding over time. And we know this mathematically, that the sooner that your life starts compounding, the sooner you stop sort of, you know, messing around and experiencing the world and trying new things, the, the sooner you make hard decisions, the better your life gets because, because those decisions compound.
2: And, and I heard you say this capacity, like in some way, diversifying is a hedge. Um, And, you know, hedging is not how you compound. Um, and so, and and then to push back there, they would say, Hey, but picking the wrong thing, also either picking the wrong partner or picking the wrong career could also be, um, you know, the wrong thing and given, you know, I'm going to live longer and be healthier. Like, shouldn't I take more time to really like, I'm not just, you know, dilly dally, but, um, really try a bunch of things and, and travel and, and experiment with new lives.
1: So I, I, I often point to, you know, the best executives know that that's also another, another fallacy that by pushing off the decision, it doesn't make the decision any easier. Oftentimes it makes it harder, but there's some cost fallacy. The people who make the best decisions make them very fast. And when they make the wrong decision, they realize it and they reverse course. And oftentimes, you know, we have this fear that we're going to make the wrong decision, but that's an, you know, an unplaced fear. Oftentimes we make the right decisions about life. So, you know, the, the sort of Bezos one-way door, two-way door, there are very few decisions in life that are one-way door, um, even career. So I made, I, I went all in on what was 100% the wrong career for me. And I was able to reverse that decision. It was difficult. I wish I hadn't done it. Like, I wish I had been smart enough to make the right decision, but like, you can reverse your career. Um, and, and oftentimes people do not want to do that. They don't want to go all in on one thing. They don't necessarily you know, want want to commit to a person, to a job, to, to an identity. Um, and I think the earlier that you make those choices in life um, and the earlier that you kind of stop experimenting, there's, there's so many examples of success stories. And, and that's sort of a, a very dangerous meme that has been given to people um, so they won't compete with the other people who are making really difficult decisions. I mean, it's like, this is this is the most dangerous meme. Um, so yeah, I, th- that's, that's one example. But I think there's so many examples of people who are at war for your mind. And you have to ask yourself, what are the incentives of these people who are creating these memes? Like, do they want me to succeed? My parents want me to succeed or the vast majority of parents want to see their children succeed. But like, what about the other people? Do they really want to see me become the best version of myself? Probably not. Um, maybe, maybe this is a low trust society that I'm, that I'm speaking in. Uh, but, but I think these memes are are far more dangerous than people let on to.
2: Well, I think about this a lot. Like why do people celebrate other people being vulnerable on social networks? Like about their failures and stuff. Cause maybe they're kind of excited when you fail, (laughs) like, you know, maybe it makes them feel better about themselves or, or they can rise up or like, why play into this, you know, sort of, uh, attention game for people who actually would prefer that you didn't succeed. The, 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 memes are people should strive for optionality and freedom. And yet they don't appreciate that one doing things like starting a company builds lots of optionality because or committing to something like, like, because lots of opportunities will, will emerge that you wouldn't have foreseen otherwise. Um, and, and then, uh, and similarly, like, you know, pursuing things for optionality too many times, like you, it, it will like, if, for example, if people will go be consultants for like 10 years, cause they want, they want to start a company. Well, in order to start a successful company, you might need a few tries and plus your opportunity cost rises to, to, to your point, like the optionality death trap is, is actually like flawed on, on its own terms. And then similarly, like the freedom thing, you know, David Brooks once said, what, what, what you chain yourself to is, is what sets you free. Like once you commit to a person or a place or a project, you now are free from, from agonizing over what person, project or place did you commit to, which will save a ton of brain space.
1: We, we know this instinctually, like we actually know, and, and this is why society by and large has has organized itself in these ways of making decisions at a certain point, um, you know, in, encouraging marriage so that you can have children, encouraging, um, you know, I- encouraging staying with, with a career, encouraging staying with a, with a role, an identity in life. Um, and, you know, I, I think there's there's, it, it's sort of a, you know, in some ways, because America has become so prosperous, many more people are confronted with these questions. This used to be uh, a question of kings and queens of who am I? And sort of these sort of heady questions of of how to spend your time. Um, So in some ways it it is a symptom of progress and success, but we need these structures and we need to encourage, you know, encourage sort of structure in society so that people don't lose their minds. And I think if you, if you look at sort of, you know, wh- why does it feel like people are like, why does it feel like people are losing their minds? Like there's no one who's going to argue against that, that we haven't sort of, you know, and it's like, what are the reasons for it? Well, it could be perhaps that there is no structure. It could be perhaps that there is too much choice. It could be perhaps that, that too many people are sort of, you know, waiting for perfection on all dimensions of their life, instead of just making choices that are ultimately get going to maybe not make them happy, but maybe make them content. Um, You know, and when we look back at previous generations, that's what they did and things worked out. Um, And again, I think a lot of the pressure is taken off of those decisions when you're not thinking of your life as this thing that is only you, but you're thinking of your life as one, one part of a long lineage of people. It's so much, it's just comforting to know that it doesn't all rest with you. And that your choices, as long as you're sort of moving the ball forward for this group of people, that are your your family, your kin, like the people you care the most about. That that's okay. It it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to be perfection. <laughs> you know, we, we don't all have. We don't all have to. You know, kind of achieve achieve the the ultimate dream.
2: It, it's this great irony that uh, pursuing what we think might will make us happy in the moment. At you know, our whole lives in some ways won't make us happy or fulfilled looking back at our lives. Whereas you know, pursuing things. You know, you've talked about the importance of suffering or, or believing in the value of suffering things in which involve sacrifice and deep suffering and, Hey, we're not happy at, at, at that given time. Cause we're, we're engaging in hardship could lead to a, a life, you know, more fulfilled or happy. And what's ironic is, is that economic growth is really focused on removing first on removing privation, like basically going on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And once you, you, you know, many people have gotten, you know, great food and shelter and, and, and those needs met. And at some point, it, like, it's all about increasing utility, but at some point you kind of need to introduce disutility. Like you need to introduce that, that suffering and and uh, capitalism doesn't do it easily for us uh, unless we choose to start a company or th- things like that. But um, there's this kind of broader layer of like this thing that was once the the good and the thing to optimize for, which is the satisfying of desires on the lower level of Maslow hierarchy you need, doesn't help us get to that, that, that point, like removing suffering, right? Like we want to move suffering to a point, but not all the way. And so how do we, voluntarily introduce some level of suffering to have that, that level of meaning.
1: No. And, and, and even if we remove all suffering, um, we introduce synthetic suffering and, you know, suffering is a huge part of, of life and how you deal with suffering ultimately defines you. Um, so, so this sort of like push to, to reduce all kinds of suffering at the, you know, at the expense of any type of, of sacrifice or any type of progress, um, I actually think is, is part of the reason why we're, why we're so, you know, so sad. I mean, if you look at every, every new poll that's come out, um, you know, uh, Jonathan Haidt has really good statistics around just depression and rising teen depression and sort of this sort of the the numbers are shocking because it, it shows that the vast majority of people are, are, are sort of entering this world where, where they feel unhappy just being. And so we have to figure out why that is. Um, it can't just be, um, you know, like, like a lot of the hypotheses I think are wishful thinking at not doing the, the kind of real, Kind of saying the saying the the the, the troops that are hard to recognize, which is that maybe we're, we're we're consuming memes that are very you know very dangerous or, or memes that that are just not true. And that it's leading people to, you know, leading people to believe things that are, they're that actually harmful for them.
2: Religions are, are sets of memes, among other things and practices that help guide choice or, or restrict choice. And I, I believe you're, you're, you're Catholic and, and religiously inclined, but you're also um, pro-tech and, and pro-building and and one stereotype of, of, of that group of people or, or certain peers is they're not as pro-tech or pro-building because they see it as a threat to, to certain way of life. I'm curious if you can comment on, on to what extent is, is that true? And if so, why are you different in, in that way?
1: It's not true because Pope Francis just came out very much in favor of AI. Um, he actually said we should embrace new technologies responsibly and look at, you know, uh, I, I, you know, the, the Catholic church has a long history of of, of sort of having a, a weird relationship with technology, oftentimes because it was a political relationship. But I think the Catholic church is actually pretty pro-progress and pro-technology in terms of how we use it to, to become more human. Um, we have to use it to become more human. Um, Not to make this a theology lesson but but i think there's a i i think people who are anti-technology because of their religion are sort of missing the point of of how technology can serve us in sort of this you know this sort of constant quest to become more human and and kind of more more divine um if you're if you're um if you're sort of looking at it through that lens um you know to, to your question of like how how does how did i become the way i was or how has religion impacted my life? I mean, I think it's like religion impacts all aspects of my life. But the thing that I think, you know, reflecting on sort of what it, there aren't many really, really religious people um, or people who believe like like I don't encounter many serious serious religious people in my day to day life. And I think the having having grown up in a religion where you know I I've constantly questioned it but never wavered in it. Um, and having that be sort of the pillar of my identity of who I am, of how I make decisions, it has made me a true contrarian. It has made me very disagreeable because if you're going to live inside of uh, uh, if, if you're going to take, if you're going to wrestle with really, really deep questions from very early on where people are telling you that you are constantly wrong or or that those or that those religions just aren't relevant anymore. It forces you to kind of have an internal debate with yourself every day. And if you end up on the side of actually i believe this even though everyone around me tells me that it's wrong it is a lot easier to go into a boardroom and to say the hard thing it is so much easier for me to go into uh, a room full of people that are saying this investment will never ever make sense and to basically say you're wrong because i've been told that i'm wrong so many times (laughs) about so many things that i'm absolutely convinced in that uh, being contrarian on things like investment decisions is very easy. Um, and so I, I actually think being a religious person in 2023 cultivates disagreeableness. It alla- like, And especially if you're someone who's had to live with that and wrestle with those decisions every day of your life, it is a practice that has led to the ability to, to build a trait that is very useful in the corporate world. It's something we don't talk about very much um you know when i say like i'm not around that many religious people i very well could be but it doesn't come up because people don't bring it up because it's not like part of part of you know like like people kind of keep it to themselves but i am sure that a lot of very disagreeable people either come from a tradition uh maybe it's not religion but maybe it's a cultural tradition or maybe it's a, a an experience where they feel so siloed from other people in their life that that sort of identity has allowed them to be disagreeable in every other aspect of their life because they know that the thing that they hold most dear to themselves is true and other people don't believe it. So it's, it's been useful for me, um, in a very both granular way, but also in a, this is, this is also, you know, who I am. So it's, um, it's definitely a part of, of not only how I make decisions, but just how I present myself
2: in, in some ways, Um, it's, it's not just an ant, you know, pushing back towards people who are telling you you're wrong. It's also pushing back towards people who are telling you, you know, why is it even worth pursuing or ha ha ha, you know, irony. It's an antidote to irony among, among other things. And in, in some ways the, the description you just gave is really similar to your description of seriousness, which we've talked about in, in the moment Zen podcast of how, um, you know, doing something in the face of not, of people telling you it's wrong of people telling you it's stupid of people telling you, you know, why you're even doing this in the first place, just like deploying every tactic to get you to stop doing something. And someone serious or, or religious um, is someone who, who does it anyways, because they, they believe and that they have faith that that, that thing is worth, worth pursuing and they pursue it single-mindedly.
1: Yeah, no, and I, I think, you know, seriousness is sort of the, the way in which you pursue things. And it doesn't have to be, it can be any sort of, it could be any sort of job, any sort of noble goal. It can be anything. But I think the commonality of pursuing something with a serious mindset is that you will be mocked, that the world will come after you, um and that you will be seen as you know at the most extreme sense you will be a pariah um whether you know whether we're doing the secular example of that which is which is socrates or whether we're doing the religious example of that which is jesus like you will be seen as someone who is embarrassing at best and dangerous at worst and so seriousness is actually the the quality of that which just means someone is pursuing a, 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 a an activity that is noble and that is good and that is innately human but in a way that makes others uncomfortable because of how deeply they believe. I think we need more of that. Like you and I've talked about this a lot. Like there aren't many people who see that quality as something they aspire to anymore. And, you know, maybe that will change. You know, I, I think like probably the last time where we had a, a, a kind of large population of people who were serious about a mission was probably in World War II. Um, and so it could change, But I, but I think we need more people who are, resolute in their beliefs and in their values, and who are not afraid of the consequences of that.
0: So
2: gearing back to sort of the beginning of this conversation. Here's a question. Do you think more tech people should run for office? Like, how do you think about, uh, about that?
1: Running for office is such a, it it, it takes a particular type of person who, who wants to put themselves and their family through that. And I think it is hard, it is it is a hard thing to ask people to do. We've actually made it very difficult for people who are not career politicians to run for office, just given how much you have to open up your life, um, how much, you know, it, it, it's it's almost impossible from both a, a business perspective, from a, you know, from a, a family perspective, um, you know, a lot of tech people don't have the same sort of insatiable urge to be in the national spotlight. They just wanna build things. So to ask them to, to then go and be performative, which, you know, frankly, a lot of running for office Is really more like acting than it is like being the ceo of a company for better or worse and so you know there's a lot of reasons why people shouldn't do it would we be better off if more successful people across various fields decided that they wanted to give back through running for public office 100 is that going to happen no because these people are rational and they've already been successful in their fields and it's become harder and harder uh, to, 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 you know, to, to enter the culture war, to enter these actual sort of political wars um, that we're going through. So I don't fault tech people for saying they don't want to run for office. I know I would never want to run for office, um, even though I think public service is really important. Um, I think it's a really hard thing to ask a person to do unless they've built their life around this goal, which, which is why we have the culture and politics that we have.
2: You know, Teach for America helped raise the status of teachers uh, by making this exclusive program that more people then wanted to do who wouldn't have been teachers otherwise. That's people in the beginning of their career. But I'm curious if, if there'll be something like that for public service that will raise the the status and importance and maybe even opportunity set for people who go pursue it as a way to get better people.
1: I would hope so. I think there's been a lot of um, experiments with how to bring people from various fields into, into public life. I think the examples of of people actually doing it, um, and just the difficulty of it probably keep more people away from it than sort of the the experiments. But but I'm hopeful that at some point, we can turn the turn the card or completely change the course of America at any point. It's just what is going to be the event or what is going to be the thing that really leads people to say, you know, I want to give back, I want to contribute. And we'll see what that is.
2: I'm glad we spent the second half of this conversation talking about things like family and commitment, and fulfillment and opportunity, because those are, you know, implicitly some of the, uh, values guiding, uh, you know, things like, things like American dynamism and why our country is, is so worth, uh, protecting and, and, and building for, uh, both internally and externally. Catherine, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for, for, for joining and for, for building out your American dynamism practice for any entrepreneurs, uh, you know, building in this space. Uh, uh, Catherine is the number one person to work with. We're lucky to share a number of of uh, companies in common and uh, couldn't recommend the A6 and Z practice uh, any more than I do. Uh, Thank you so much, Catherine.
1: Thanks so much, Eric.
0: Turpentine VC is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Moment of Zen and Econ 102. If you liked the episode, please leave a review in the Apple Store or rate us on Spotify. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now.